one. Can we give Zach and uh, Maggie and Nathan a hand for leading us in worship this morning? Thank you guys so much for that, and it was good to just hear everyone's voices as well, uh, to sing those hymns, sing the, uh, the classics, and so it's always good to just hear the congregational voice, right? Um, so thank you guys for leading us in that. There's a lot of people traveling today, um, a lot of people just kind of moving about. It is the end of June. Um, it's been an awesome month, uh, great weather. Um, I'll take 100 degrees over snow any, any day, so um, that's been fine with me. I don't know about you guys. Um, but listen, let's have a word of prayer as we start and uh, as we join together in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, we're looking at the first five verses today, and uh, we will uh, uh, we'll join in on this topic of diligence that we're looking at. Um, and so let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Our Father, thank you so much for this time that we have together to, to join in your word, to join in song, to celebrate your goodness, uh, your faithfulness, your kindness, uh, your power. Um, and everything else, Father, we come today in just full honor of that. I know that there are some here today who didn't come for that, um, and that's fine, God. I pray that through the course of our time now, God, that you would draw our hearts and minds to authentic worship and living for you and what it truly means uh, to pursue you and to be faithful with diligence. So, God, would you lead us in this and, be, uh, and encourage us uh, in this way through Paul's encouragement uh, to Timothy. And uh, God, we just commit all of these things um, to you, and it's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, and as you do, I'll tell you a little story that I heard. I came across the story of a woman who, uh, she survived the ruthless Nazi concentration camp um, in Auschwitz, Poland. We've all heard about that, right? It was uh, basically, basically one of their extermination camps, and her and her brother uh, were separated from their parents, and uh, they were on the train heading to this camp. Now, she was 15 at the time. Her brother was eight years old, and she recalled looking down and seeing that her brother's shoes were missing. And so as they're on this train, she began to scold him, saying things like, why are you so stupid? Can't you keep your things together? For goodness sake, right? Nothing an older sister wouldn't naturally say to her younger brother, right? Uh, we've all heard that. We've all said those kinds of things, except um, she didn't know that this would be the last time she would ever speak to her brother. Those would be the last words as she would survive the camp, but her brother would not. And so when she left uh, uh, this camp, when they were liberated from the camp, she made a vow to never say anything that couldn't stand as the last thing that she would ever say. It's a pretty good vow, isn't it? But I say this to say that there is great, par uh, great power in parting words and final words, right? Uh, uh, the last thing that you would say to a loved one or someone that you, you care about when the wrong words are said, it can lead to a lifetime of regret, can it? And when the right words are said, it has the power to change the course of a person's entire life and entire purpose. And here in our passage today, what we see, in a sense, is Paul's final words. Of course, we've been looking at his final words to Timothy through this whole letter. But what we have now in chapter 4 in the first five verses is his final charge. It's his final command and encouragement to his son in the faith, who is Timothy. Now, there's still more to be seen uh, in this letter, and we'll, we'll look at that. Uh, Paul still has some things to share about his own example, his own record of ministry. But in these verses today, we see Paul kind of tie a bow um, on his imperatives, right? His strong encouragement and commands to Timothy for ministry. 
and life. And so knowing that, it brings uh, sobriety, some soberness to these words. What a challenge that must have been for Paul, right? I mean, you think about Paul and Timothy and this, this history of faith that they had with one another. How do you tie a bow on top of all of this ministry experience and affection for one another? How do you bring an end to that? What is that last charge, that last expectation that you would lay in their laps before, before you are to never say or see them again? What is that? And yet, he does it beautifully, as Paul naturally did, and he seizes the opportunity not to just give Timothy some hope to get through the moment, but, but he offers him a gift. He offers Timothy a gift, something that will last him a lifetime and prepare him for eternal life, and that gift is this beautiful call to diligence. It's broad, it's broad, and it contains a lot of specifics in the broadness of it, but ultimately what it is, it's just a charge to keep going. And don't just do it bare minimum, but to do it fully, diligently, right? So that's where we're going today. I want to invite Roxanne up, who's going to read our passage for us this morning. Uh, again, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 5. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning? Good morning, Roxanne. Good morning. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from the hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Thank you so much. You can have a seat. So, as you saw, uh, the command from Paul, right, this final opportunity to give Timothy this gift, this call to diligent service, right? Not to just serve faithfully Christ and his gospel, but be diligently faithful servant of Christ and his gospel. And you can kind of catch that trend through here, right? Not to just be ready in season and uh, not to just be ready in any singular season, but to be ready in all seasons. Not to escape hardship, but to endure hardship. Not to just have self-control in some things, but to have some con- self-control in everything. Not to just do the work of a pastor, but also to do the work of an evangelist as well. Not to just do his ministry for a time, but to fulfill his ministry to the very end. And I'll tell you, I've been in ministry for quite a while now. For me, it's quite a while. It's been about 15 years. I'm 35, so that's like almost half my life. For you, that's chump change. I understand that. But 15 years is long enough for me to, to know what it feels like to lose some zeal at times, uh, uh, to lose some passion, um, to lose some fervency and uh, joy and, and fulfillment in the calling that God's put in my life. And I think many of you can share that same sentiment, certainly when it comes to maybe your own calling, your own vocation, but also in our relationship with the church, right? And honestly, if it weren't for people above me and around me who I know love me and care for me and want the best for me who say, you know, Adam, don't lose your fire, man. 
keep it up and step it up. You know, if it weren't for those people who just offered that constant encouragement to me to just basically keep going, keep pressing, uh, keep advancing, keep, keep, keep doing, then I probably wouldn't be here now. And you probably wouldn't be where you are without people pouring that encouragement into your life. And that's what Paul is doing with Timothy. It is a gift, a gift that blesses Timothy, that keeps his, his motivations high, but also advances the gospel. It has eternal merits. And so Paul fuels Timothy's diligence and service and faithfulness. And we all need this. So I'm going to be saying the word diligence a lot. It would be good to, to understand what our operating definition of this is going to be, right? So the definition you'll commonly find, whether it be Webster or Google, whatever, will say having or showing care and conscientiousness in one's work or duties, which is good. But compared to what I think the biblical definition is, it's just kind of cute, right? Because the biblical definition of diligence is far more significant. If you were to take every Hebrew and Greek word of the Bible that we have translated into the word diligence or diligently, you'll find a broad spectrum of words, meaning but not limited to these words, exceedingly, abundantly, thoroughly, fully, earnestly, zealously. My favorite, which is muchness. A Hebrew word that means muchness. That's what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. Only be on your guard and diligently watch yourselves or watch yourselves with muchness so that you don't forget the things that your eyes have seen and so that they don't slip from your mind as long as you live. Teach them to your children and your grandchildren. I would say, in fact, you know, despite the variance of original Bible words used, the theme of muchness is a great broad yet simple and clear definition of the biblical understanding of diligence. One commentator wrote about diligence. He said, quickly, diligence is quickly obeying what the Lord reveals as his priority. Which I love that, right? Whenever God reveals that his priority, then we quickly jump to it, right? We get to it. And he goes on to say, this elevates better over good, the more important over important, and with earnest and swiftness. I love that, right? It's not just about doing everything, but it's about noticing what God's priority is. And when you notice that, when he gives that to you, then you obey swiftly and with some oomph, right? You're earnest about it. You want to do it because you're motivated by something good. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Diligence will not allow you to ever settle. It won't allow you to ever settle. To never settle for the bare minimum, to never settle for the status quo, and it also means this. It means quality over quantity. Muchness is a call to excellence, not numbers and running around like an exhausted busybody in the name of the Lord. To not settle for, for many good and busy things, but to do with excellence the main thing that God has revealed as his priority and to do it quick and to do it earnestly. This is diligence. I think Jesus taught this principle often. One uh, case would be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42, where Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. That's muchness. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
This is a muchness, right? You see that. It's that next step. It doesn't necessarily mean more. It just means excellence. Even if what you're doing is few, to do that few wonderfully and excellently and with diligence, that's the expectation. That's the call. What makes the difference, by the way, between baseline faithfulness, right? The status quo faithfulness, just kind of going through the motions and doing whatever obligatory action you need to do to just maintain this baseline appearance of faithfulness versus diligent faithfulness. What's the difference? Well, the difference is in the motivation. It's the motivation. What inspires you to that? And that's where Paul starts here with Timothy. Uh, with Timothy, He says in verse 1, he says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead and because of his appearing and his kingdom. Right? Let's just pause there for a moment. That's the inspiration. That's the motivation. Jesus, right, who is worthy, by the way, of being in the same sentence as the word God, Right? Uh, uh, Paul doesn't say God and Christ Jesus to draw a line between them as if there's a line in their difference in their value or something like that. He, he isolates them to show their singularity, to show their unity. Jesus, even though he came in the flesh and many people undercut his true Godship, he is worthy of being in the same moment and sentence as God because he is equal with God. So don't be thrown off by that. But he is not only God, but he is also judge. He's going to judge the living and the dead. Not only is he judge, he is king. His kingdom is coming, and he is going to appear, and his kingdom is going to be there, and he, he is king. So Jesus is God. He is judge, and he is king. This is our motivation, right? It's wonderful, uh, by the way. He... <laughs> To think that he, it's not only the name of Jesus that all people are judged in this life, but that even at the end of all things, even the dead are going to be brought back to this great judgment where they're going to be judged again upon the name of Jesus Christ. That's what it tells us in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11, uh, 11 and 12. At the end of all things, John says, I see a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. And I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. All right, there's an ultimate judgment, and it'll be Jesus Christ that will be deter the, the determining factor, the judge of that judgment. Now, Jesus, he is God, he is judge, he is king. And if this is your motivation, if this is the foundation of, of your command, then who are we to respond with anything different than swift and obedience, swift obedience and diligence to what he's expected of us? Christ is God, he's judge, he is king, which makes it even more remarkable, by the way, that all of that feels untouchable, doesn't it? feels like supreme, feels bigger, feels like God, and yet in his uh, being God and judge and king, he has made himself wonderfully like approachable, that we can actually have a personal relationship with him, that he is not only king, but he, 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 he responds to us with kindness. He's not only creator, but he has this deep and tender affection for his creation. Yes, he is judge, but his desire is that all would come to repentance and salvation. 
And he is king, and he rules with authority, but he also rules with kindness and mercy. So it's supreme power matched with endless grace. I mean, this is the full dynamic picture. There's nothing more dynamic than God himself, and it's awesome, right? Uh, We see this kind of dynamic nature in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, in Matthew 11, verse 28. So first, Matthew 10, 28 says this. Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Our God has this power. He can do that. He can kill your soul. But that's not as hard, is it? In Matthew 11, literally one chapter over, Matthew 11, verse 28, this is what it says. It says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He could kill your soul, and yet he offers rest and restoration through the grace of Jesus Christ. That's your God. He could kill your soul. He's worthy of every bit of your reverence and your respect and your honor, of course, as supreme being. And yet, his heart is to give you rest. And so he is also worthy of every ounce of your affection and love. He's the full dynamic picture, right? And so we love him dynamically, and we give ourselves to him dynamically. And if this is our motivation coming out of a true reverence for him as supreme, but also true love and affection for him who has made himself available to us by his grace, we would be pleasantly surprised at what great links we would go to for his sake if this was our motivation. But there is something that gets in the way of that often. There is this threat to this kind of diligent service and faithfulness, right? And so let's look at this passage again. Let's read in verse 2 and then focus in on 3 and 4. Verse 2 says this. It says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience. And now he gets into the thread of the matter. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. And they will turn away from the hearing of the truth and will turn aside to myths. And then he goes on to say, but as for you, and he starts to encourage Timothy again regarding his personal calling and walk. But this is the threat, right? The threat to diligence is this infatuation with having ears itched. It's the constant temptation for preachers of the gospel to sacrifice what's truly in here and start just telling people what they want to hear so that they feel good about themselves. And that's about it. Right? People walk through life still going to hell, but they have a pep in their step about it. It's not good preaching, right? And it actually is, is condemning in a way. And he's telling Timothy, don't do that. Right? All of these other people are doing that, but you don't do that. Right? I read these verses more, uh, less as, as Paul telling Timothy, hey, look at the culture around you and go get lost in every single fight. Every single hypocrisy, every single false truth, go get lost in it all and fight it all versus what he's actually saying, which is, you know, Timothy, I am most concerned about your heart and your ministry. And so even though everybody's doing this, I want you to stay focused on your walk with Christ and your ministry. His concern here is for Timothy because culture is doing nothing different than it's ever done before and it'll always be doing what it's doing right? Paul's encouragement to Timothy is don't try to carry the burden of changing the entire culture. 
Do what you can do to actually maintain truth yourself. Your higher priority is to maintain truth in your own life and in your own ministry, not to to resist every single non-truth around you. And what we've learned in this letter is that it's actually more better, more productive, more powerful for the gospel when we take the maintain your own faith and, and, and gentleness and patience. It's more powerful for the gospel to take that route than to just get lost in every stupid argument out there. That's what he says in chapter 2, uh, if you want to look with me, verses 23 through 26, where he says, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. It's actually more productive for the gospel to take the diligent, patient, often quieter approach it's more effective that way. It's a, it's a charge. Uh, it's a, it's a charge and a principle that we've been looking at steadily uh, through this whole, through this whole book. It's an attitude marked by firm and resolved patience and gentleness in your declaration of the truth that is far more effective and powerful for the gospel than any emotionally charged defensive attitude, which are often markers of spiritual insecurity and emotional immaturity. What people see when people do that is it's just a bunch of silly, immature Christians who have no self-control. Now, we could go on and on and on about culture and, you know, all of this, you know, satisfying itching ears and all that kind of stuff. But honestly, we've already talked about that a ton. So I would encourage you, if you want more on that, to just go visit the last four to six sermons that we've preached You know, to listen to the podcast, listen to some of these other things that we've been getting this message out there. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it here. If I could incline you, if you want just a a good sermon to just go back to, uh, Brett preached one in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, that he titled, titled, Your Best Life Later. That's a really good one to consult if you want more on just this struggle with truth and the culture and all that kind of stuff, okay? But all that said, we've looked at the motivation Right for lasting diligence, and, and we know the threat, we see the threat, we feel the threat. Now let's look at the charge and command that Paul gave to Timothy and that we have as well as we navigate all of this, all right? And so we're going to see this primarily in verses 2 and verse 5. Verse 2 says this, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. And then he goes on to talk about the threat, and then he comes back to Timothy in verse 5, and he says, But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So let's take them piece by piece, briefly. He says, preach the word. Be a proclaimer of truth, right? Uh, Be a proclaimer of truth in the way that you've been called uh, vocationally to and by a believer in Jesus Christ. You're just called to preach the truth, to share the truth to God's people. He was a pastor. This is who he was. He was a shepherd. And part of that was preaching truth. And so continue. Keep doing it. Be ready in season and out of season. Listen, there is no off season when it comes to faithful diligence, 
There is no age where you just age out of that expectation or that hope or that command. There is no such thing as spiritual retirement. It's not a thing in the Bible. You don't just graduate out of doing things for the Lord. That's not a thing. There is no compartment of your life that should be void of your faithful diligence. It's not something that you just leave at the church, but then you go to the sports field or the home or the office and you just leave it out of it. That's not a thing. It is every part of you. You serve the Lord in every part of you, right? In season and out of season. There is no off season when it comes to your walk with Christ. He goes on to say, rebuke, correct, encourage, with great patience and teaching. This is to be a good shepherd. He was called to shepherd the flock. He was called to be a dynamic shepherd. Not only do you just encourage people in the highs, but you go to the depths of rebuking people when they need that too. You give them what they need, right? You give them what they need to pursue the Lord. Sometimes that is correction, and sometimes that's just heavy encouragement. You go there. You do what you need to do to shepherd well, even if it stings a little bit at times. And he says in verse 5, he says, exercise self-control in everything, which sounds impossible. But he's encouraging Timothy to keep exercising that, right? And how do you do that? He tells Timothy elsewhere to be training yourself in godliness, right? That we actually have a role to play in our discipline and in our self-training so that we might have self-control, which is really Christ's control over our lives and over our minds. To train ourselves in maturity and godliness, to, to be growing in Christ, to guard ourselves against anything that seeks to distract us from faithful diligence, right? If there's things that trigger you and, and you just lose all control because of those triggers, then stop giving yourself to those triggers. Uh, uh, avoid those triggers. Pray against those triggers. Do what you need to do to train yourself in godliness so that, you, so that Christ has control over your mind and over your heart. And then he goes on to say, endure hardship, which if I've ever seen anything that can compromise a person's self-control, it's hardship. There's a lot of people who do a lot of funky things when they go through hard times. They can take it out on people. They can hurt others. They can hurt themselves. They lose self-control. Which, by the way, being a believer in Jesus Christ, the inevitable, the inevitable reality is that you will endure hardship. You must endure hardship. It's part of who we are. This whole, you know, uh, uh, beautiful, kind of like uh, uh, churchy, comforty, easy thing that we've kind of bottled the church into being is not a thing. Like, that's not, that's not real Christianity, right? The Bible says on and on again, if you're living overtly in the name of Jesus Christ, you can expect to get slapped every once in a while. You can expect some fallback. You can expect something, Something that we need to endure and actually embrace, not just resist. And that's what he's calling Timothy to. To do the work that you've been called to do so much so that even if it, it causes some persecution, it's okay. And then he goes on to say to do the work of an evangelist. Now, Timothy wasn't called to be an evangelist, and so he doesn't tell him to fulfill his calling of evangelism. But he was to do the work of evangelist. He was called as a pastor, but just because he was a pastor pouring into a body of believers doesn't mean he was negated of still sharing the gospel to other people. He still had to do that because that's part of what comes from being a believer in Jesus Christ. And so what that means is that you don't just proclaim truth to everybody who already knows it. You do that and you encourage each other in that, but you also bring truth and bring the gospel to people who don't quite have it yet. That's what the work of an evangelist is. Do it creatively. Be bold about it. Get out of your comfort zone. Advance the gospel to those who don't have it. 
And lastly, he says here, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry, which I can only imagine as, as Paul wrote that, and kind of the, it's the last moment of this charge, what was going through his mind, right? Now we get, from the biblical perspective, we get glimpses into this relationship, right? Back in Acts 16, we see how, how, how Paul pinpointed Timothy and saw something in Timothy and brought him into ministry with him, right? And then in this letter, 2 Timothy chapter 1, we see how Paul was part of that ordination process of bringing Timothy into full-time ministry. And from that point on, we've seen Timothy do wonderful things for the gospel. And so now Paul is, is kind of putting a bow on it. He's saying, fulfill your ministry because I'm not going to be here when it's fulfilled. You're going to have to carry on some of this by yourself because I'm about to die. Right? History tells us that Paul died the same year he wrote this letter. Nobody really knows if they saw each other again. This was certainly the last biblical record we have of, of Paul writing to Timothy or to anyone. Right? So chances are they might not have ever seen each other or, or heard from each other again. Paul's not going to be there for Timothy. And yet Timothy is to fulfill the ministry. Don't just do it for a while and then whenever you're 65, you know, go to Florida and just coast it out. That's not what he tells him. Fulfill your ministry. And we know Timothy did this, don't we? As an 80-year-old man stoned to death on the streets of Ephesus for declaring truth at a pagan festival. Long, diligent service ended with martyrdom, which I bet for him was a plus, as it was for many of these people from the early church. You don't get much, diligent, much more diligent than that, do you? He didn't just fulfill his ministry. He fulfilled his ministry with muchness, diligently and faithfully. Because his motivation was who? It was Jesus Christ. The supreme God, judge, king, who was also the lover of his heart and a tender friend to him and a kind savior. And he was motivated by his love for Jesus, right? And he was motivated by Jesus' love for him. That's what led him into this remarkable ministry to, to be fulfilled. And as I scanned this charge, I thought, you know, there are pockets of places, you know, these, these kind of compartments that I think we uh, don't often want to think about, but I think it's good for us to just know how this could play out in our own lives. This kind of diligence, these relationships that we have where diligence should shine forth, right? It should be a bright part of who we are as we, as we live out in these relationships. The first one being, obviously, our relationship with Jesus Christ. This needs to be the first and foremost place of diligent faithfulness that any of us have, right? So if you're here and you haven't pursued the Lord at all, like this is the first thing that you've given to him all week, you have, an, you have a diligence issue. You have some faithfulness there because you're here. That's good. There's some diligence there, right? Daily walking in his word, face to face with him, hearing his truth, receiving from him, praying to him, having still moments where you receive from him, a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We see this in the way that Paul tells Timothy to, to be ready at all times, to be self-controlled in everything, right, to endure hardship. Timothy couldn't accomplish any of this if he didn't have a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus Christ that he was constantly investing in, right? And, and that, that investment, that discipline has got to be tied to that motivation where we love Jesus so much that we want to have this time with him, and through that time, he gives us what we need to do everything that pleases him, right? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, that's what he says. Dear friends, 
If our hearts don't condemn us, then we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from Him because we keep His commands and do what is pleasing in His sight. And that was one of a billion passages I could have picked that talk about how we as believers, our full motivation is to do what is pleasing to Him because He has done the most pleasing thing for us. He's given us salvation. He's died on the cross for our sins. He could kill our souls, and yet he offers rest for our souls. He is supreme power, and yet he is your kind friend and brother. He has done this. Everything about him should solicit joyful, swift obedience and diligence. That personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Building on top of that is that relationship that you have with the church, the body of Christ. Right? Paul tells Timothy here to preach the word, to, to be a dynamic shepherd who goes to the depths of rebuking, to the, to the heights of encouragement, to fulfill his calling as a pastor. Right? Now, his calling was vocational, of course, and some of ours is. But we all have a calling to the church. It's littered through the New Testament. You cannot believe in Jesus Christ and be, be saved by his grace and disconnect yourself from the body of Christ. You can't do it. And if you preach that or claim that, then that's a false truth. That's not right. It stands against the New Testament. In fact, what the New Testament does say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. We should have a heightened intention towards those who claim Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. You've got something. You've got a role to play. You've got a gift to use. God has given you a place of corporate worship. He's given you a hub for the proclamation of truth. He's given you a community and an ecosystem of believers that as we are all connected and vined and branched together, we all grow together, right? And if your sole purpose of being here is to just help everybody feed you, yes, that's part of it, but that's not the main thing. We all join together to feed each other, to grow each other, to work for each other. That's what we're here for. Romans chapter 12, uh, this whole chapter uh, uh, specifically about the body of believers, but it says in verse 10 and 11, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Don't just attend. Don't just come and receive. We want that for sure. But also be in the habit and in the practice of honoring others above yourself, however that might look. Don't lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit and serve the Lord. So diligence needs to play out in our relationship with Jesus Christ, of course, building on top of that is a relationship with his body of believers. And then thirdly, and if you think about it kind of like a, like a target, right? You have Christ and then you have the body and then you have, what well, I'm just saying, your neighbors. We have a relationship, a diligent relationship with our neighbors, or at least we should that's motivated by the body of Christ. And we see that simply here as Paul tells Timothy to do the work of the evangelist, even though that might even not be Timothy's giftedness. I don't know. But there's still something about evangelism, about caring for the lost that Timothy was to have, even though his whole life is devoted to, to the proclamation of truth and mainly to believers. He still needs to have this evangelistic outlet going on, and we all do. What is your neighbor? Your neighbor is anybody who doesn't have the gospel that you have, but that you're going to come in contact with, 
whether that be, you know, a mission trip to, to some foreign land and you're going to be around a bunch of non-believers, those are your neighbors. Whether that be uh, uh, the people who you go to work with and you literally see them every day because they sit three inches from you every single day in the office, that's your neighbor. Whoever that person is, whatever those connections are, people who don't have the gospel, we are called to be diligently faithful in taking that to them in some way. Now, Again, being in ministry long enough to see that most people love to busy themselves with the first two so they don't feel the need to do the third. They love to busy themselves with intake and intake and intake and intake and service and service and service and service, and it all happens in their bedroom and in the church walls. But when it comes to the neighbor, I'm just too busy for that. I'm doing all the other good things. And that's when we need to decide, okay, what's the priority here? And let God reveal the priorities and then we obey swiftly. And I'm telling you, it's a priority. It was a priority for Paul to tell to Timothy, even though he was a very busy man doing a lot of awesome things, he still needed to have this evangelistic outlet, and we do as well. Jesus talks about neighbors in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles do the same. You can see muchness and diligence all over this, can't you? Ordinary is just to stay wrapped up with each other. Diligence. It's taking the same love and affection and all the stuff that we have for each other and taking it to those who aren't like us, who don't think like us, who don't believe like us. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 22 through 23, where he basically goes on this rant about how he becomes, you know, Jew and Greek and and all of these things that he's not, but he'll still fit the part if it means carrying the gospel to other people. And then afterwards he says, I become all things to all people so that I might by every possible means save some. And I do all of this because of the gospel, so that I might share in the blessings. And this is the charge for us as well, that we would have such a vibrant walk with Jesus Christ that would bleed into our relationship with one another another and our affection for the body of Christ and this ecosystem of spiritual growth that we're all a part of, and that 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 love would transcend even beyond that, into the neighbors, the people who need Christ, who right now are heading to hell with a pep in their step. And you've been in their path, put in their path by God himself for a deliberate purpose. And to not carry any purpose there or intention there doesn't speak well to how we view our neighbors. If you have the greatest gift that has ever been given to mankind, the salvation of your soul and eternal life, it should solicit an intentionality from us to those who don't have it. And I'm preaching to you and I'm preaching to me. So the charge is for us as well, that we would have this comprehensive diligence of of faith that marks our relationship with Christ, with the church, with our neighbors, And that we would do it not just to status quo, not just because Adam's yelling at me again, not just because Brett asked for it, not just because of anything else other than you want to serve the Lord your God 
and obey him swiftly because he's died for you, he's risen for you, he has equipped you, he's called you, and you love him so stinking much that you want to do this for him. That's our call. That's how diligence happens. And I pray that he would do that work in us today. Let's pray. Our Father, would you increase our diligence today? Don't make us busy, pointless, and missionless. But God, would you give us quality in our service to you and our faithfulness to you? That whatever we are doing now, that we would step it up in diligence, that we wouldn't riddle it with a bunch of other things, but we would just do it with new fire and new, uh, new passion. For anybody here who, who tries to read the Bible and, and just doesn't connect, God, I pray that you would give them new passion. Now, for anybody here who's just gotten routine and, and habit in their relationship with the church and in their church attendance and service, God, I pray that you would give them new passion, new motivation, inspired purely by the love of Christ. For those of us in here who just need to be reminded of the gospel again, to be reminded that you are king and judge and God, and yet you gave all of that up and became flesh and then died brutally for our behalf so that we might have our sins paid for and atoned for, so that if we believe in you as our Savior, that you might grant us eternal life, and you have that power to give us eternal life and relationship with you because you walked out of the grave You've proven it over and over again. If there's anybody here who has none of this because they don't believe in that yet, I pray today would be the day that you open the eyes of their hearts to know and receive the gospel of Jesus. God, would you do the work that you want to do in each and every one of us and not let us get in the way of that and trust you uh, with that, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as I always say, uh, if you've been here and you just lessened all that and God already pinpointed some things in your heart, awesome. Chase that. Uh, pray about that. Wrestle with that with the Lord. But if you need some help just processing, uh, there's a few tips on the screen. Really, the question for all of us today in each relationship, whether it be Christ, church, neighbor, how is Christ leading you to practice muchness for his name's sake? That is a question I hope we all wrestle with. I want to take a few minutes now to pray about that, and then we'll close.